0: What is the nature and basis of political power? The question of what constitutes the basis for kingship itself. If it's not divine right, if it's not the clear line of succession, then what?
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Asides from Chicago Shakespeare Theatre. I'm Sarah B.T. Thiel, Public Humanities Manager at CST. Thanks for joining us. It seemed appropriate to launch Asides today, April 23rd, because it's the day we celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. So, happy birthday, Shakespeare. You are looking pretty good for 456. In honor of Shakespeare's birthday, we'll listen in on Dr. Beth Charlebois as she introduces CST's production of Henry V, directed by Christopher Luscombe in 2014. What you'll hear today is part of our preamble program, pre-show talks that take place at CST before most weekend matinees. This preamble was originally recorded on May 24th, 2014. We chose to kick off this new podcast with Beth's Henry V preamble for a couple of reasons. Henry V features a lot of firsts in our history at CST and in Shakespeare's. You'll hear Beth talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. We also wanted to start with Beth because, together with Director of Education Marilyn Halperin, Beth developed the preamble program more than 20 years ago when the theater moved to its permanent home on Chicago's Navy Pier. Dr. Beth Charlebois is an Associate Professor of English at St. Mary's College in Maryland, where she specializes in English Renaissance drama and Shakespeare in performance pedagogy. So, without further ado, I'll turn it over to Beth.
0: Henry V, the play that you're gonna see this afternoon, is of course a history play. A history play that is deeply connected to Chicago Shakespeare's history. The first production that Chicago Shakespeare did of this play was 28 years ago, on the roof of the Red Lion Pub in Lincoln Park. Not as grandiose a place as you'll see the play performed today. And I think it's a great coincidence that the Red Lion is also the name of the first permanent public theater in Shakespeare's London, which opened in 1567. So there's this great convergence of firsts, both for Chicago Shakespeare and for the British stage. Uh, Henry V is also the first play that Shakespeare wrote for the Globe Theater, where he was a shareholder and the resident playwright, as you know. But it's the last of eight plays devoted to to English history that Shakespeare wrote in the 1590s, largely based on Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles. And this is a a history published during the time. It was enormously popular, and it served as fodder for English playwrights that wrote dramas derived from Hollinshed's accounts of English history. And some of you may be familiar with Christopher Marlowe's Edward II is a play that is largely indebted to, uh, to Hollinshed as well. This group of eight, scholars refer to as the first and the second tetralogy. There's two series of four plays. The first tetralogy actually happened later in chronological time. Involved Henry VI, part 1, 2, and 3, and ended with Richard III. His defeat at the Battle of Bosworth and the ascension of King Henry VII, who began the Tudor dynasty. And so that's the first. that's the first tetralogy, but it's more contemporary to Shakespeare's time than the second tetralogy, where he actually goes back further in time it's a, and tells a four-part prequel, actually, to the to the earlier plays. And this, these four plays are called, commonly referred to as the Henriad. And it involves Richard II, Henry IV, part one, Henry the Fourth, Part two, and the play that you're going to see this afternoon, Henry V. So Henry V is the last play of this second tetralogy, this four-part series that tells a story that begins with the reign of the medieval king, Richard II, whose legitimacy was never questioned. There's a clear line of succession for Richard. He's the son of Edward the Black Prince, who actually died before assuming the throne, but the line of succession went straight from his grandfather, Edward III, to Richard II, who assumed the throne when he was 12. Shakespeare's play, devoted to Richard's reign, is written entirely in verse. It's one of Shakespeare's only, Shakespeare only wrote two plays that consisted entirely of verse and Richard II is one of them. I always tell my students it's this impenetrable vault of verse. And I think of it as being intimately tied to the world order that is represented in the world of the play of Richard II. As a result of his rash and poor decisions, Richard is ultimately deposed and murdered by his cousin. Who assumes the throne as Henry IV in 1399. And I cannot overstate the ways that the deposition and murder of Richard II constitute a complete change in the world order.
2: Neat,
0: tidy order replaced with realpolitik. And it's not coincidental to me, in, in fact, that the English translation of Machiavelli's The Prince was published in 1585, a little bit before Shakespeare started writing English history. And so part of the larger conversation going on in Shakespeare's England is, what is the nature and basis of political power? The two plays that Shakespeare wrote after Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, are as much about his prodigal son, Prince Hal, the future Henry V, as they are about his father. And these plays, in contrast to Richard II, have an amazing amount of linguistic variety. It's like there's been an explosion after the sort of rigors of iambic pentameter and heroic couplets in Richard II. All hell breaks loose in the Henry IV plays. There's this incredible, I always feel like it's like the story of Babel, where uh, God has sort of made us all speak different languages, and you get that kind of variety in the Henry IV plays. After Prince Harry spends a glorious time carousing with the fat knight, Sir John Falstaff, and his crew of tavern dwellers, participating in a whole lot of hardly royal escapades, the prince proves himself at the end of Henry IV, Part I, in the Battle of Shrewsbury, defeating the valiant Hotspur. And at the end of Henry IV, Part II, he inherits the crown from his father and publicly rejects Falstaff and his tavern companions and assumes the role of king. But the world that Harry inherits is very different than the one his uncle had reigned over, Richard II, largely because of the way that his father had seized the crown and assumed the throne. To be the son of a usurper makes the head that wears the crown that much more uneasy. This new king follows the advice of his dying father to busy idle minds with foreign quarrels. And the new king begins his reign in 1413 at the young age of 25 by trying to unite a fractured kingdom that had been at. In civil war for 12 years by reviving an ancient claim to the French throne and going to war with that old rival just across the English Channel, France. And this is the action that largely begins the play that you're going to see today. But the first scene doesn't feature the king himself but rather two very powerful bishops who are discussing Henry's radical transformation from misguided youth to impressive young monarch. And they're also discussing a bill that's coming through Parliament that threatens to significantly deplete the Church's lands and coffers. They will have the task of legitimizing Henry's claim to the French throne in the very next scene, but Shakespeare makes it clear from the beginning that they are not without self-interest in doing so. They want Henry to support their cause in this parliamentary bill. By the time Henry wrote by the time Shakespeare wrote Henry V, this was already Henry was already the stuff of legend. There are 200 years between Richard's deposition and Shakespeare's writing of the story of it. And if Richard II is remembered for his deposition and murder, and not so effective rule, Henry V is remembered for his miraculous transformation from miscreant youth to awesome monarch, and his victory over the French at the Battle of Agincourt against nearly impossible odds. A few years before he wrote his own Henry V, Shakespeare undoubtedly saw a play that was very popular in England called, in London, called The Famous Victories of Henry V, and he literally pilfered all kinds of episodes for his own version of the play, which also focuses on Henry's victory at Agincourt and his youthful escapades in the tavern. The play itself, Shakespeare's play, is an adaptation, of course, that we know of a well-known story about a well-known king perhaps the most celebrated king in English history. And Shakespeare's version of it is fixed forever in 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 the English imagination, in the literary imagination. And for centuries, probably up to this very day, English schoolboys and girls memorized some of Henry's speeches as examples of rhetorical brilliance and, of course, some good English patriotism on top of it. In America, this legend of Henry has largely been fixed for us in film, the films of Laurence Olivier in 1944, dedicated to the Allied troops, which many of you may be familiar with, and Kenneth Branagh's 19, 1989, slightly darker adaptation. More recently, the Hollow Crown series made for PBS has related the Henryad: Richard II, Henry IV, Parts One and Two, and Henry V. As much as film has left us this incredible, r- incredibly rich legacy of uh, interpretation of these, of this story. I think this play is really about the capabilities and limitations of the stage, as much as it is about the capabilities and limitations of its titular character. In live theater, the audience is charged to not only imagine the battle that that will be represented by four or five most vile and ragged foils, but the legendary king himself, who is and is not the actor on stage playing his part. Shakespeare in many ways suggests in this play that while there is a deep divide between the ways things really happened at the Battle of Agincourt and the paltry representations of these events on stage, there is a deep affinity as well. This is a reality imagined by the playwright and dependent upon the imagination of the spectators to make it real and true. In this scenario, the theatrical nature of kingship itself is emphasized. This is not an immutable identity conferred by God, as in Richard II, but rather a role to be acted and played before internal and external audiences who variously confer upon the mere actor and this mere man absolute power and authority. In this play, the engine, the PR engine for Henry, comes in the form of a chorus a vestige of Greek drama that serves as a theatricalized narrator imposed on the action who summarizes or anticipates what's going to happen while presenting the legend of Henry and serving as an apologist for the limitations of the stage. I always have my students read the play first without them. Critics think they might have actually been added somewhat later. And they do so much work for Henry in this in this play, it's really spectacular. And if you remove them and sort of enjoy the play without them, you can recognize how vitally important they are. In this production, the chorus is not played as he usually is by a designated individual performing the role, but by actors in the company who simultaneously articulate the lines of the chorus at the same time that they will dissolve into their roles as characters in a particular scene. This dual role, when they're playing both this sort of meta metadramatic chorus and characters, serves to simultaneously naturalize and theatricalize the action, everything that we see and hear. So there's this realism that is profoundly disrupted by the chorus being articulated by the actors themselves
2: wing our swift scene flies in motion of no less celerity than that of thought. Suppose that you have seen the well-appointed king at Hafter's Bier embark his loyalty and his brave fleet with silken streamers the young Phoebus fanning. Play with your fancies and in them behold upon the hempen tackle, tackle shipboys climb. Hear the shrill whistle which the boy gives to sounds confused. Oh!
0: Within this highly theatricalized context, Henry himself is the quintessential performer. Of course, on one level, he is, big surprise, an actor. In this case, an incredibly talented actor who very confusingly is named Harry. (laughs) Who's playing Harry. Um, He has the enormous task of playing the part of Henry V, just as Henry himself as a man with a dubious claim to the throne, must act like a king in order to advance his objectives and maintain power. Unlike his predecessor, Richard II, this king has a keen awareness that he is just a man, but one with awful responsibilities. So the key question for every director confronting this text is, what is the nature of Henry's performance? Is this a performance of artifice, of guile, or just smart strategy? Every production will vary, and the production you'll see today, directed by Christopher Liskom, will give you a distinctive take on Henry's character. From the moment you walk into the theater this afternoon, you will see a bare stage, with the exception of the English flag hanging from the ceiling, racks of spotlights on either side of the stage, that will illuminate, eventually, an empty wooden throne with a red scarlet velvet seat and back. The red cross of the flag and the red blood of the throne remind us tacitly of the blood that is now on the throne of England in the wake of Richard II's deposition, as well as it will anticipate the sacrifices to come, the blood that will be spilled by the English and the French troops at war. And the prominent spotlights flanking the stage remind us that they will be relentlessly trained on the man who will assume that chair. The empty throne on this virtually barren stage also reminds us of the ways that the king is so isolated and ultimately very much alone. The investment of so much power in one man is as overwhelming to the bearer of it as it is awe-inspiring to us and his troops. When Henry enters the scene with other nobles, you won't be able to easily distinguish him at first because he's dressed remarkably simply. In a simple leather jerkin and boots, he has no royal robe, not even a crown. It is only when he sits on the throne that he will become the king. It's an incredibly important set piece, so keep your eye on it. And this, it is this, this is the Henry who remains throughout this production. He never dons the accessories of kingship, those that he lists in the famous ceremony, idol ceremony speech. The balm, the scepter, the ball, the mace, the crown imperial, the intertissued robe of gold and pearl. These are not the accessories of the Henry you will see this afternoon. He remains a simply dressed man who insists repeatedly that he is ordinary, a common man finding himself in extraordinary circumstances. Even when he travels to the French court to negotiate with Charles VI, he wears the same black leather outfit in contrast to his French counterparts who appear in these extravagantly richly elaborate robes, even in defeat. And watch for the ways that this production visually juxtaposes the English with the French court the dark and muted blacks and browns of England versus the brightly gilded furniture and fabrics of the French. The French prince, the Dauphin, is all bluster. He's dismissed even by his own peers, and this production gives him a dis- distinctly modern mannerisms and gestures that link him with a contemporary comic tradition. So after the performance, I want you to compare notes and see who he reminds you of.
2: My most redoubted father... It is, most meek, we arm us against the foe, but let us do it with no show of fear. No, with no more than if we heard that England were busied with a Whitsun-Morris dance, for, my good lady, she is so idly kinged, her scepter so fantastically borne by a vain, <laughs> giddy, shallow, humorous youth that fear attends her not. Oh, peace, Prince Dauphin. Shakespeare,
0: in in crafting the French, depicting the French in this way, is drawing on long-existing stereotypes of the French as particularly uh, courtly, overly-mannered, sophisticated in a pointless way versus the pragmatism and earthiness of the English. And this director adds a twist on that, uh, particularly the characterization of the Dauphin. So if Henry isn't costumed or accessorized in a particularly kingly way, How is he performing a role, as I've suggested? And I think he is very deliberately performing and assuming the role of the ordinary man, which is also an extraordinarily effective strategy when the divine right of kings and the philosophy of the divine right of kings has fallen away. This, of course, is linked to his youthful identity as the tavern dweller who boasts in Henry IV, part one, that he can drink with any tinker in his own language. While he spent the earlier days of the Henriad mixing it up with the common folk, now he makes that part of his distinctive royal identity and appeal. He, in his famous St. Crispin's Day speech, he claims that their shared mission as English soldiers will bestow honor on them and will gentle their condition, or actually improve their social rank.
2: You were men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin, To covet, honor, I am the most offending soul alive. Do not wish one more. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and. Gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. When Olivia's film
0: and Branagh's actually depict this scene, this when Henry's giving the Saint Christmas Day speech, with Henry literally elevated above his troops, looking down on their over the over them. This production will situate Henry on the same level as his soldiers, as if their loyalty and duty not only make him king but ennoble them as well. They're all on the same ground. And it is the power of these words, these unbelievably eloquent words, that constitute Henry's most sublime power, one that he wields as mightily as his sword, although this production is going to make it very clear that Henry is a completely awesome sword fighter. So watch for ways in which that ability is very dramatically underscored with some special effects and... This production emphasizes repeatedly that Henry has the integrity to back up his lofty, spectacular speeches with action. This distinguishes him both from the grandiose and bragging French Dauphin, whose military prowess is mocked repeatedly and ridiculed, and the braggart Pistol, an Englishman from the old tavern crew. In this production, for the first time, Pistol struck me as a kind of foil for the king because his, while his preposterously affected language, he speaks in these uh, uh, outrageously uh, overblown speeches, initially impresses the Welsh Captain Flewellen, the English Captain Gower blows Pistol's cover and says he's really like an actor who memorizes the commander's names by rote and the specifics of the battle strategy, only so he can go back to London and over a few beers brag about action that he never actually saw. He, unlike Henry, assumes the form of a soldier rather than the substance. But that isn't to say that Henry doesn't put on a good show on occasion. His speech at the gates of Harfleur, the French town of Harfleur, is one of the most graphic and disturbing speeches in the play and in the entire Shakespearean canon. The king will threaten rape, murder, execution of the elderly, of infants. It's really a horrifying speech and when the governor finally relents and surrenders look for the ways that this henry will react he lets us know that this is one of the many ways that he will follow the advice that he gives to his own men and the once more to the breach speech that he that it's best to imitate the action of the tiger rather than essentially being the tiger itself Sometimes exactly the opposite is true. Henry can feign friendly appreciation for his own men, the nobles Scroop, Grey, and Cambridge, as he gives them their wartime commissions before they depart uh, across, the, across at the port of Southampton. But then he reveals that he knows of their treasonous plot to betray him to the French, rather than the mercy they seek. Its sudden execution. This Henry is constantly strategizing, anticipating and always theatricalizing his power. This role-playing as the ordinary man extends to a scene where Henry literally disguises himself as a common soldier and goes among his troops to talk to them on the night before battle. He perhaps gets more than he bargained for. He finds out that his men doubt his cause and that they fear that he'll be ransomed while their own throats will be cut because they are just common men. His lengthy speech after this scene reveals how profoundly alone he feels in this critical moment before the Battle of Agincourt. In this production, it is this time, it is this moment after that scene with the common soldiers that he will appeal most directly to you as the audience. On this night before battle, where will your sympathies lie? Are you with the king? Or are you a skeptical follower? Henry knows how to play the role of the courtier, too, with the French Princess Catherine, whom he will attempt to woo even though their marriage is really just an itemized demand in the treaty between French and England at the end of their military contest. This is not a matter of romance, but a matter of diplomacy with the ultimate objective of solidifying Henry's claim to the throne and legitimizing his heirs. But he knows so well how to win her and us by feigning the deference of a suitor who, albeit very charmingly, makes it still clear that she is a spoil of war. Just like Petruchio, who had tamed his shrew Catherine by calling her Kate against her wishes, Henry will literally translate the French princess's name by referring to her instead by the common English nickname, Kate. Kate. Again, he adopts the persona of the ordinary man, one who can't court or woo because he is too much of a soldier, distinguishing himself from the courtly pretensions of the French while asserting his martial superiority, his quintessential masculinity, and his Englishness always. While insisting on his inadequacy as a suitor and acting as though it is up to her to accept him or not, she really has no choice at all. But he can persuade her, and us, to believe that she does. Role playing is nearly ubiquitous in this play. And quite literally, the production you'll see this afternoon, you'll see actually actors playing more than one role. And this is a Shakespearean convention. Uh, In Shakespeare's time, a company of 15 actors would play all of the parts. And in a history play like this, where there are over 40 speaking roles, that puts a burden on the company to play many different parts. Now, there won't be as much doubling as there surely was in Shakespeare's original production, but you'll see it used in deliberate ways, and I want to call your attention to affinities and juxtapositions that are created by these actors playing more than one part. It's a practical choice, but with some interesting artistic implications. This could provide an additional pleasure for those of you who are longstanding Chicago Shakespeare fans, where you'll see actors from the last performance of the Henriad appear again, In actor Greg Winkler's performance today of the roles of Pistol and King Charles from France, you'll see and hear the ghost of his Falstaff, all the way back from 1999, a role that he reprised again here in 2006 and the Royal Shakespeare Theater. In actor Kevin Goodall's performance of the gray-bearded Duke of Exeter, you may see a shadow of his youthful Prince Hal. These are histories within histories and plays within plays. Along with these layers upon layers of performance and theatricality, this is a play about a young man who decides to take his country to war, to unite a fractured country under one banner. English, Scots, Irish, and Welsh have their deep, long-standing divisions, and Shakespeare in this production do not shy from revealing them. But again, Henry's spectacular ability is to unite them, to create in them this band of brothers, despite these contentious differences. And he does this again through this amazing mastery of language, the beauty and power of this language that elevate him and his men, and sometimes in spite of our very selves, us too. And you'll hear at various points in the action the song of a wood thrush in the background, a very ordinary looking bird. And I want to think about, I think about this bird as an aviary complement to the elegance and eloquence of Henry, the ordinary man who can sing such magnificent songs. And to listen to how that soundtrack of the wood thrush is occasionally punctuated by the, the cawing of crows, these harsh cawing of crows, as almost to distinguish Henry's eloquence and the wood thrush's from, uh, from the common man. While the initial battles in the play are all verbal, the French dauphin's mocking gift of tennis balls to the newly crowned Henry do in fact turn to gunstones or cannonballs. The time for games is over. The set itself will be transformed from court to battlefield and back again. The somber brown paneled wall of Henry's court will first turn to the blue background of the French, but the tapestry of the fleur-de-lis is removed and the wall comes down and becomes a kind of drawbridge that connects the world of the court to the world of the battlefield. But the drawbridge isn't put down entirely. It remains in this kind of half-up, half-down position, creating this incredibly steep incline that serves as a visual reminder of the physical and psychic demands of going into battle. And it will be used by both the French and the English troops as they head into the fighting. There are other reminders of the Battle of Agincourt in the production. You'll see English soldiers carrying longbows, and the longbow is thought to be the strategic... uh, linchpin in the victory of the English over the French and because given their vastly reduced numbers, having archers positioned throughout the field shooting hundreds and hundreds of arrows was a devastating blow to the French cavalry and really gave them a strategic uh, advantage despite their their disadvantage in sheer numbers. You'll see the wooden pickets it will provide the background of that, of the later scenes in the play, and those are the pickets that protected the archers against the advancing French cavalry. This is not just a war of words and strategy, however. There are real consequences. There is a character in this play simply named Boy, who accompanies the tavern crew to France. He, in my mind, he serves as a sort of moral barometer. It is he who poignantly announces the death of Falstaff, the king's old companion. In the aftermath of Henry's rousing once more to the breach speech during the assault on Harfleur, the boy lags behind and honestly admits, would I were in an alehouse in London, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. It is he who sees through the shallowness of his employers from the East Cheap Tavern crew, Pistol, Bardolph, and Nim, and decides to leave this trio and seek some better service in King Henry's army. When we learn that the French have attacked the English supply tent and killed all the boys guarding the luggage, this production will create an extra textual scene with the boy that personalizes and dramatizes that act of brutality that is only narrated in the script. It is this scene that provokes Henry's most unguarded emotional moment, perhaps suggesting that in this boy, Someone that Henry clearly knew in Eastcheap, he sees the death of his own youth and innocence. There are crucial moral and ethical questions in this play about heroism, honor, and war that require our judgment. The play in this production repeatedly asks for our imaginative engagement to make the play work, but ultimately it also asks for our assessment of this man, this actor, this actor king, for it will ultimately be your thoughts that will deck this king.
1: That's all from me, Sarah B.T. Thiel, and the Asides team. We'll be back next week with an introduction to our 2018-2019 A Midsummer Night's Dream from Preamble scholar Dr. Stephen Bennett. You
2: may be wondering what a prairie vole has to do with a midsummer night's dream.
1: Asides is presented by the John W. and Jean M. Rowe Inquiry and Exploration Series. Please consider donating to Chicago Shakespeare Theater's Brave New World campaign. To join us in supporting audiences, artists, students, and our community, please visit chicagoshakes.com slash brave new world have a question for CST scholars artists or staff want to tell us about a memorable moment at Chicago Shakespeare you can send an email to asides at chicagoshakes.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-667-5631 and we'll respond in a future episode you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Chicago Shakes, or on Facebook as Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Make sure to use hashtag CSTAsides, and don't forget to subscribe to get all of the latest updates from Asides. Until next time.